Have you ever wondered if there's a missing wellness strategy in your life? Take a look at this first slide of today's presentation. I've, I've often said to my patients that chronic disease and any health dysfunction is most often caused by some kind of deficiency. So our task then is to figure out what's missing. Okay, is it a lack of some type of nourishment in our lives a missing strategy? As I mentioned uh, during session one, my mother died of cancer at age 39. I was 10 years old. It had a, a powerful impact on my psyche. I remember getting up early in the morning and riding my bike to school. My grandmother was tending on me, and, and she would say, child, what are you getting up so early for? She'd get me some breakfast, and I'd, I'd be waiting at school in the dark an hour and a half before school time. I still don't know why I did that. It, so the loss of, a, of my mother so early in my life had a, had a huge impact on me. But one of the things that it did to me is it, it caused me to constantly think about my health. It caused me to become interested in reading about health. How can I optimize my health? How can I figure out what's missing in my life that might be contributing to my risk in the future? And because of that, I became a fan of anything on health. And I remember as a 13-year-old, I came across this book called The Ministry of Healing. In my opinion, it's the most powerful and most holistic book on health ever written. It, it covers areas of physical health, emotional health, and spiritual health beautifully. And essentially, it draws attention to not just one aspect of health, you know, where we are the champion of exercise, or the champion of nutrition, or you got to get your water, or, you know, all those different health strategies that get a lot of billing in today's health media. And I remember asking myself what the most important strategy was, but I also asked myself, what's the least important of these strategies that I'm reading about? And that's really the topic of today's discussion. It's, um, is there a missing nutrient in our life? And I'm going to tell you about a miracle drug. This, this miracle drug is so awesome that it kills bacteria powerfully. In fact, the way it does it is that if you take this miracle drug, it will literally stimulate the DNA within the nucleus of every cell to to provide this special code that is then used by the cell to manufacture a protein called catholicidin. This is the antimicrobial peptide that will actually be used by the immune cells to destroy viruses and cancers and bacteria, anything that's not supposed to be there. You see, the immune system is just like everything else. An army without ammunition is not going to get very far. 
You have to have ammo, and the immune system has to use this ammo or this antimicrobial peptide to attack the things that it's supposed to destroy in the body. And so this is one of the best ways to kill bacteria. If you take this miracle drug, you are actually greatly protected against pneumonia. It fights tuberculosis. In fact, if you take this miracle drug properly, you can completely eradicate tuberculosis. Do you know that, that one out of three individuals in this world today are affected by tuberculosis? That could be potentially eradicated if this miracle drug, properly used, uh, was taken advantage of. It adds years to your life. It synchronizes hormones. It beautifies your skin. It protects against uh, at least 16 different cancers. It protects against multiple sclerosis. It fights binge eating, drives away depression, prevents falls in the elderly, lowers risk of hip fractures by 50%. And people who use this miracle drug properly, it, it lowers the risk of falls in the elderly by at least 40%. It Increases agility, makes your muscles stronger, prevents chronic kidney failure. In fact, it can even reverse stage three and potentially stage four chronic kidney failure. And it builds the immune system. Now, you might be thinking, what's this guy trying to sell me now? Right? I mean, how much is this going to cost me? If, if, if this is actually true, how much? Would you be willing to pay for this miracle drug? But here's the good news, folks. Okay, it's sunlight and various aspects of sunlight that can powerfully bring healing. Ever since the early 1980s, we have heard, we have heard media blitz after media blitz of how bad sunlight is for you. And so tonight, I'm going to try to change the tide of that. Because we need to learn to reason from cause to effect. We need to actually recognize that for many of us, this is actually a missing strategy. And it is such an important strategy to our health that missing the strategy could be the one reason why everything else that you're doing isn't really helping you reach your goals health-wise. Are you properly taking advantage of this missing nutrient. So uh, sunlight, vitamin D, and health, uh, its impact on weight, depression, infections, and cancer, and and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, let, Let me begin by sharing with you two quick studies as we introduce this topic. A few years ago, in 2009, the 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 big conference for the American Medical Association convened in Florida, and researchers presented on the levels of vitamin D in adolescents, individuals, teenagers, and determined how that level of vitamin D in teenagers' blood blood dramatically impacted the risk for disease. In fact, what they did is they, they, they... divided up the group into four equal groups. And they compared the group of teenagers who had the lowest level of vitamin D compared to the 
25% or the quarter of those individuals who had the highest level of vitamin D. And what they found was fascinating. It says, those who had the lower level of vitamin D, we're talking about levels less than 15 nanograms per ml. Now, if you're in Canada watching this, if you're in Europe watching this, you have to, divide, uh, you have to multiply that number by two and a half. So if the units you use is millimoles, then, it has, then it's basically your level has to be two and a half times higher than the numbers we talk about. Okay. So, so if your level is, by the American units, less than 15, your risk of having high blood pressure as a teenager is 2.3 times greater. Teenager. Okay. Uh, the risk of having high blood sugars, prediabetes or diabetes, went up two and a half times simply because the vitamin D was in the lowest fourth of that teenage group. And the risk of metabolic syndrome, which we call insulin resistance, which is known as the number one risk factor for heart attacks and strokes as we age, went up almost fourfold in those individuals who had a low level of vitamin D. Now, here's the sobering part of the study. As they looked at the spectrum of these teenagers, they found that the average 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels measured in the blood for white teenagers was 28. For Mexicans was 21.5, and for black youth, it was 15. A big difference there. But here's the catch. Everyone was vitamin D deficient. Yes, Hispanics and whites had, had slightly higher levels of vitamin D, but not enough to actually be considered sufficient. They were all technically, on average, deficient in vitamin D. In other words, this is a problem for all of us, and we all need to take advantage of this information and act on it. Now, another study I want to draw your attention to as we get into this topic is goes along with the presentation done in session three, dealing with advanced cardiovascular risk factors. One of the biggest challenges for doctors who give or prescribe statin cholesterol-lowering medications is that in at least 20% of their patients, they, these patients develop joint and muscle pain. Not just a little pain. We're talking about significant pain, so much so that they immediately know, after a couple of weeks, that this medication is really hurting them. And so, and so the, the physician will oftentimes refer that patient to a specialist, a lipidologist. And it was Dr. Paul Zietka who, who was presenting this information not long ago, and he basically said that the vast, uh, the vast amount of patients that he gets is because they're not tolerating statin medication therapy very well. But what he said was very critical because he found that 95% of individuals who don't tolerate statin medications do so, have that problem, because they're vitamin D deficient. Now, 
There have been several big studies that have been published in March of 2014 and, and a few months before as well that are casting doubt on the whole concept of the value of vitamin D. They crunch some numbers, pulled together a whole bunch of studies, and their conclusion was we should really be backing off of this idea of recommending vitamin D supplementation. In fact, we probably don't really need to measure vitamin D at all. I could not disagree more with those conclusions. And here's, here's a real critical part about wellness that, that you want to pay attention to. If you spend any amount of time studying a given topic, you will realize that there is a lot of different opinions on every topic. In fact, there's a lot of different studies on every topic, and you can pick and choose the studies that maybe fit your perspective. Or you can try to be a truth seeker and try to find out what is really important in general for the public, but especially for for me or for you as as an individual. I've had the privilege of talking with with several, actually four or five of the world-leading experts in vitamin D uh, in clinical practice. I've I've had the privilege to go to three international conferences on vitamin D. It's a fascinating topic. Why? Because it is one of those missing elements in the majority of individuals. And it's, it's, it's not just missing, people are actually trying to avoid it as if it's the plague. So that's why this has to be addressed. And so when we come up with a new study that seems to cast doubt on the concept of of using sunlight healthfully, of optimizing vitamin D blood levels, you want to ask the question, do I follow the, the conclusions of that individual or do I go to the experts who have been studying this for 50 years who didn't just do one study, statistical analysis, but they've actually been thinking about it and studying it and asking the right questions for many, many decades. Whose conclusions are you going to believe? I don't care if there's some white paper put out by some organization. Okay, what I really care about is this person, has he done or she done enough research to be, to, to, uh, be, for me to be willing to listen to them and follow their advice. So, so um, what's interesting is that Dr. Zika finds that the vast majority of his patients now can tolerate a statin medication when they replete vitamin D to adequate levels. Now, that right there, given the new recommendations about the importance of lowering cholesterol, that right there should be enough to supersede any notion. Of, of giving up on this concept of optimizing vitamin D blood levels. But an, an important part of this is that everybody who takes a statin actually has muscle damage. They may not have joint pain or muscle pain, but studies show when you actually do a biopsy of the muscle of anybody on a statin medication, there is damage present which goes to show that at minimum, we should all be paying attention to this 
to this forgotten or shunned wellness factor that is so critical to our health. It's interesting that as we look at advanced cardiac risk factors, we need to be we need to pay paying attention to the big picture here. There's many things that influence our cardiovascular health. Do you know what time of the day are you most likely to suffer a heart attack? It's, it's early in the morning, right around the time that you wake up. During that first hour after waking, that's when our bodies physiologically and psychologically and emotionally as well, are most at risk of succumbing to a heart attack. Why is that? Well, the body begins to produce or release cortisol, that stress hormone, a couple hours before we wake up. That's the way it's supposed to be. It should be that it's increased or released gradually so that at wake-up time, we actually wake up and we feel good. The problem is, is that increases clotting, that increases blood pressure, it increases blood sugars, it increases the risk of not only, not only uh, breaking a, a atherosclerotic plaque open, but increases the risk of that clotting, it decreases the potential to break up that clot, on and on and on. That's why there's a 40% greater chance of having a heart attack first thing in the morning. What are some things that we could be doing right now, that we could begin to, today, that we could begin tomorrow morning that dramatically lessens our personal risk of having a cardiovascular event? I'd like to suggest to you that one of the most be- uh, wonderful gifts that we have available to us is to enjoy the early morning light outdoors. Preferably with a little walking involved, that would be good too. Uh, but uh, getting, a, a, getting a tall glass of water first thing in the morning and going outside, even if it's just sitting outside, it can powerfully change your day psychologically and physiologically. And that's really the topic of all the other things we're going to be talking about today. So what we have is we literally have a biologic clock. Uh, that, that basically synchronizes with the light-dark cycle. In other words, if you are not spending an optimal amount of time outside, and that the research suggests is somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes outside in the light. Now, I'm not talking about two hours out midday. Okay, at, the, at the heat of the day. I'm talking about being, right now, about being exposed to sunlight, the morning light or the, the late afternoon light. That type of light penetrates your eyes, your retina, and it stimulates the pineal gland to release melatonin at night. When you get exposed to bright light outdoors, during the day, any time, that helps your pineal gland in its ability to release that much-needed melatonin, that restorative hormone that literally helps your body heal and helps your body sleep. Because if you can't sleep well, your body's not restoring well. You're at risk of, pre- of, of, of speeding the aging process and and speeding the, the disease process in the body. We want to speed the healing process, right? And that requires good sleep, which requires time outdoors 
exposed to light. And the best time to get that, based on the research, is early in the morning as the sun has just come up. That sets the stage for psychological wellness as well as physical wellness. I I remember in 1988, I was finishing up my studies at Loma Linda University, and I was given an opportunity to go to Singapore and do a, a lifestyle medicine internship for a summer at a hospital that had been named after my great uncle, who had been the first Christian missionary to the island of Borneo in the early 30s. The Youngberg uh, Adventist Hospital. And, and so as I got there, uh, I, I flew in on uh, Seoul, a Korean Airlines, through Seoul, and then to Singapore. Got there late at night, and after, after flying for nearly a day, right, a full 24-hour day, I was, my clock was completely off. Uh, and as I was talking to the president of the hospital, uh, he said to me, by the way, Wes, we're doing a 5K tomorrow morning right across from the hospital. Uh, would you like to participate in that? And, and I, 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 just, I was just uh, cringing inside because I knew that that was only going to be five hours away, and I was so tired. But I just smiled at him, and I said, of course, I'd love to be there. Because you know, I didn't want to make a bad first impression as a lifestyle medicine intern. So uh, sure enough, he, you know, he told me he'd, he'd wake me up. So, so five in the morning, he's knocking on the door, and oh, I dragged myself out. And then, and then he looked like I was really you know, energetic. And then I went out there in that 100% humidity uh, nearly of Singapore. And I remember running that 5K thinking, I'm going to die. My chest was nearly ready to explode and, and I was trying to make it look easy because I was supposed to be the wellness guy. And, uh, and so I, I smiled and, and just, you know, sucked it up. And after that 5K, I was exhausted, but something strange happened. I was expecting to have at least two or three days of jet lag, that early morning run. In the bright morning light, completely reset my circadian rhythm. No jet lag at all. So the, one of the major points from today's presentation, if you do any traveling at all, make it a habit to get up early at the time that, uh, that is early at your destination and get exposed to bright morning light along with some good, good, you know, hard-breathing type exercise. And that will essentially dramatically lessen any jet lag. So pay attention to this internal clock. Uh, We need to synchronize it appropriately. And every morning that you get outside in that early morning light, you're resyncing your clock. You're improving your ability to restore health throughout that entire 24-hour cycle. There's a whole new field of medicine called chronobiology, which means timing is everything. We need to pay attention to timing. There are the, there's best times for exercise that we'll be talking about. There's best times for eating. There's best times for eating larger meals versus smaller meals. 
There's best times for going to bed and best times for waking up. It's not about how long you sleep. It's about how smart you sleep. It's not about, it's, it's not about just getting that strategy in, but when's the best time to take advantage of that chronobiologically? All right, so can sunlight actually help with weight? Powerful, powerful studies. Animal studies have shown that you take a group of animals and you, you don't change their calorie intake at all. All you do is expose them to early morning sunlight. They lose weight. Eating exactly the same amount of calories. Now, calories are important. But what I'm suggesting here is that there's many other more important variables that regulate our hormones, that regulate our metabolism, that regulate everything about how we feel emotionally and how we feel physically. So, so this, this is a critical, critical part. Um, uh, and I've... I've uh, I've seen, uh, I have two, two dogs, and we like to take the dogs to the dog park once in a while, and, and, and oftentimes, the dogs are all running around having a good time, and what are we humans doing? Sitting on the park bench, okay? We should be doing something with them, right? We should be taking advantage of the sunlight and getting activity as well. Uh, interesting studies recently published showing that obese women exposed to sunlight for at least 45 minutes between the hours of 6 and 9 a.m., actually began losing weight after a couple weeks. Okay? Now, see, what's really interesting is that researchers oftentimes try to isolate the one variable that has the biggest impact. And so they control for calories to see if sunlight actually is beneficial. But see, here, here's the real important factor is that when you take advantage of each new wellness strategy and you add it to your wellness approach, what happens is that that strategy now makes the other strategies more effective. If you are now getting the psychological benefit of being exposed to sunlight, your cravings for carbohydrates go way down. So now what happens? Your tendency to binge or overconsume a given food, especially foods that we all recognize are not good for us, dramatically diminishes. So the issue isn't whether sunlight's more important than caloric restriction. The issue is taking advantage of all the missing elements in your life so that everything works the way you want it to work. Other studies have shown that just a couple hours of light exposure in sleep-deprived individuals will actually rebalance the leptin and ghrelin hormones that determine satisfaction from a meal. See, if we're not sleeping well, partly because we're not exposed to early morning light, the hormones that should make us feel satisfied don't work. We develop a resistance to the satisfaction-type hormones. They may be elevated, actually, but we're resistant to them. The body can't experience satisfaction. So we need to figure out what is it going to take for us to actually experience 
satisfaction. And that's why we want to make sure that there's no missing strategy, no missing nutrient in our life. All right, all right. Well, so maybe there's some good stuff, you know, with, with sunlight. But what, what, about, what about the other side? You know, what about the, the bad side? It could, could the treatment be actually worse than the cure? Yeah, okay, so now I feel better, but 10 years later, I get diagnosed with melanoma, right? I mean, it, what, what have I solved? I've actually, I've actually increased my risk, right? Well, let's actually look at the research. Maybe that would be a good idea. Actually, the studies show that sunshine actually protects. We're talking about regular exposure to prudent amounts of sunlight actually protects against lymphoma and melanoma. Studies at the Karolinska Institute have actually found that sunshine exposure cuts the risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma up to 40% and protects against other cancers as well. In fact, the Journal of the National Cancer Institute in 2005 published a study that actually showed that sun exposure actually was linked to better survival in people with melanoma. Now, I know that flies in the face of many recommendations, well-meaning recommendations that are given to individuals who have melanoma. I'm just simply reporting on the studies, and and the, the task that we have is to try to figure out the big picture what is actually best for us holistically? And, and from, from my reading and my experience, we need to be paying attention. The very thing that people are avoiding could actually be de- decreasing their capacity to be well. Okay, so we need to reason from cause to effect on these matters. So what's really interesting is that sun-related melanomas, based on the research, are actually much less aggressive than other melanomas like diet-related melanomas. Whoa, whoa, what do you mean? What does diet have to do with melanoma skin cancer? Potentially a lot. I believe, I have a theory, that a large... Uh, amount of melanomas are actually diet-induced. Now, how could that be? Well, you look at a typical slaughterhouse scenario. A cow or any type of animal that's being slaughtered comes by, and there is a melanoma visible on the outside of the animal. They immediately take that off the line and incinerate the entire animal. Right? Oh, absolutely not. At best, a gouge is made to remove the obvious melanoma that's that's on the outside of the animal. Now, you think that that took most of the melanoma away? Systemic. It's everywhere. It's metastatic, right? Okay. And so what happens when somebody consumes that in a processed meat? That's not going to be completely, in many individuals, digested away. <laughs> I, I have, at least a third of my patients come to me because they have such bad digestion, they're not producing enough acid. 
So what we eat can actually be transferred intact into our body. It's not something you're going to hear very often. And I believe that that's one of the reasons that processed meats are so high on that list associated with inflammation. So, so that's why I strongly, if, if, if there's one thing that we could set limits on our diet regarding would be stay away from processed meats. And there was a question I, I was given uh, about a week ago, and that says, well, what about all the processed veggie meats? Well, either they are processed. They're not first-class foods. They're not, they're not part of the foods that are most important for our health. There's no question about that. But you're not going to get infections from them or cancers from them, right? Like you would from regular processed meats. So, so there's a, don't, don't make the mistake of lumping it all into the same uh, level of possible risk. There's a huge difference between those. Uh, even though our goal is to try to get at least 80 or 90% of our diet from first-class foods, unprocessed, whole, plant-based foods. Okay, so um, interesting question. What percentage of cancer is due to smoking? Well, we know from, from an expansive review of the literature that it's about 30% of all cancers are related to smoking. Based on uh, years of statistical analysis and many, many different studies. There's never been a clinical study to prove that, but we pretty much believe that, and I certainly believe that. Um, about, about 12 years ago, I was reading the local paper, the Pacific Daily News in Guam, wonderful paper, uh, and, and I went to the lifestyle section and I was reading about this researcher at Harvard who had done an extensive research project co co uh, collating over 40 different studies that had been done on the relationship between blood levels of vitamin D and their future risk of developing cancer. And the, the researcher, this Harvard physician, was quoted as having said something that really caught my attention. I actually had to read it three times to make sure I was not misunderstanding him. And I'll tell you about that in just a minute. What percentage of cancer is caused by low levels of vitamin D based on these studies? As you look at all the studies combined, it's roughly about 35% of all cancer. Of course, it varies according to cancer type. And so, uh, essentially, this Harvard physician uh, said that the power of having high levels of vitamin D in the blood, the power to prevent cancer is greater than the power of cigarette smoking in causing cancer. Now, if I had time, I'd go over that two or three more times to make sure it sinks in. In other words, if you have a chronically low vitamin D level and you choose not to test it 
and you choose not to do anything about it, you're at higher risk of cancer than somebody who's smoking. Now, I've been laughed at before by university professors, okay? But I challenge anybody to disprove that statement because this is based on the same statistical analysis that's used in all the smoking research. Very critical. And at minimum, my point is, don't fail to address this forgotten wellness strategy. It, it could literally save your life if you pay attention to this. Now, we're actually going to put this graph uh, on, on uh, the website, uh, dryoungberg.com, because obviously there's not enough time to let this sink in, and it's a, there's, it's, this graph is loaded with information. Essentially, what this graph is showing is put together by Dr. Cedric Garland from the Moore's Cancer Center at University of California, San Diego, a brilliant researcher who, who has shown that if you just assume that everybody's vitamin D level was 25, and actually, that's, that's a little liberal. Uh, a lot of people are under 25, okay? But let's just say, for the sake of discussion, that we're starting out with a vitamin D blood level of 25 nanograms per milliliter. Increasing that, all, uh, that level supplementally or through sun exposure to 40 nanograms per ml will decrease the risk of cancers in general by 35%. Okay, so let's take a look at some of some of what that graph shows based on the collection of research that Dr. Garland at uh, UCSD has discovered. It says with vitamin D levels of 34 compared to 25, that right there reduces your risk of breast cancer by 30%. Show me other strategies that are that powerful. We know that exercise can lower the risk of breast cancer anywhere from 30 to 50%. Um, with levels of vitamin D at 50 in the blood, that's an, potentially an 83% prevention. Wow. Why would anybody not want to do that based on this data? Type 1 diabetes, if the level is 36 compared to 25, that's a 25% prevention. There's 30,000 individuals in the United States alone every year who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. If we could just prevent... One-fourth of those, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be awesome? But in fact, uh, getting the blood levels of vitamin D up to 52 is associated with a 66% prevention. Studies out of Finland who actually documented mothers who gave their infants from birth on an average of 2,000 units of vitamin D every day through age 10 in a country who has the number one rate of type 1 diabetes in the entire world, they showed that children who had mothers who gave them 2,000 units of vitamin D from birth on were 90% less likely to get type 1 diabetes. Big study. Okay, it made a big impression on me. In other words, any type of autoimmune disease is potentially 
in part preventable and treatable by optimizing this critical wellness strategy that we're talking about. Uh, the getting the levels up to 39 prevents 29% of fractures. Uh, getting it to 44 prevents 50% of fractures. Uh, incredible. The uh, heart attacks, if you get your blood level up to 34 compared to 25, 30% of heart attacks prevented. All cancers. Okay, if you get up to 38 nanograms or 40, it's 35% prevention. Very, very critical. So the bottom line here, based on the Harvard research, is that greater than 30% of all cancers and many, many other conditions um, could be eliminated if we just simply practice this forgotten strategy of taking advantage prudently of sun exposure and vitamin D repletion. Well, um, how, how how do you get vitamin D from sunlight? Studies are very clear that just getting about 10 minutes, 10 minutes of sunlight daily between the hours of 10 and 4 can dramatically increase your level of vitamin D. Now, this is one reason that many well-meaning health educators, and even clinicians may discourage supplementation of vitamin D because the studies show that if you just spend a little bit of time outside in the middle of the day, you'd get all the vitamin D you need. Here's a problem. See, as a clinician, I have tested every single patient's vitamin D level since that newspaper article came out over 12 years ago. I didn't wait for some consensus paper to come out, because that's yet to come out. I immediately started testing it based on good research. And you know what I discovered? That people who are in the sun all the time, oftentimes, most of the time, are low on vitamin D. Wait a minute. So what's going on? The, most, the, the first critical part of this is that a lot of people are in the sun a lot, but they're in the sun at a time when the angle of the sun's rays are not steep enough to actually electromagnetically transform the cholesterol just under the skin into vitamin D. That's how it works, by the way. It's a great use of cholesterol, don't you think? Okay, just let vitamin D or the, the sunlight transform electromagnetically that cholesterol into vitamin D. What a, what a little miracle. It's a wonderful miracle that we can take advantage of. Problem is, is that only happens if you follow the sun shadow standard. What's the sun shadow standard? It has to do with making sure that the sunlight is high enough in the sky, that the sun is high enough in the sky. And the rule is this. If your shadow is longer than you are tall, you're not making any vitamin D. You could be be enjoying the warmth of the sun. You could be enjoying the psychological benefit of the sunlight. You could be getting all kinds of other benefits, but you're getting zero vitamin D if 
your shadow is longer than you are tall. Because those photons, that electro, that, that, that ultraviolet radiation that's good for you is not intense enough to penetrate and do its job in making vitamin D. So uh, you go outside. My wife and I went walking after lunch today. We looked at our shadow, and it was shorter than we were tall, which meant that we were generating vitamin D during that walk. Potentially 20,000 units in that 15-minute walk that we took. Now, here's the real catch that, that threw me off for many years. I remember um, talking with a, a good friend of mine, Dr. John Kelly. He's a family physician uh, who has done extensive research in diabetes in the Marshall Islands. And uh, one day he said to me, Wes, he said, the, problem, the reason everybody's vitamin D is so low is because they're showering. And I go, no. He goes, yes. And I went, no. And he goes, no, yes. He said, look it up. And I thought that was a real logical uh, assertion, so I looked it up. And in fact, it takes up to 48 hours for that vitamin D that's been transformed under your skin from cholesterol to actually get into the bloodstream and impact your organs. If you take that bubble bath or that shower and soap up really good, guess what happened to your vitamin D? Down the drain, a large share of it. That's why so many of us can be deficient, even though we are getting sunlight in the middle of the day. So in other words, we need to pay attention to these factors. And we also need to pay attention to just because 10 or 15 minutes of midday sun is good for us, doesn't mean that every weekend we go out for four hours. Because what's going to happen then? Then we're going to be one of those statistics of having all kinds of skin cancers and other problems. By the way, what do most people do when they go to the beach and hang out there for four hours? Are they eating dark green leafy vegetables <laughs> and lots of lycopene-rich tomatoes okay, and carrots and all those antioxidants that protect them against that, that extra burst of free radical damage that occurs from extra exposure to sunlight? Now, what are they doing? They're, they're having some fries and a hamburger and a Diet Coke, right? And guess what that caffeine does? Okay, so your body is actually created to repair that damage right away. You get a little bit too much sunlight, okay? The, you have what's called DNA polymerase 3, this enzyme that goes through and sees that mutation before the cell divides, clips out that mutation caused by that excessive burst of, of free radical damage from, this, from the excess sunlight, and it'll clip it out and put the right one in, and now there's no mutation left. But guess what? Okay, if that person who had that mutation that's getting ready to become permanent, if they're drinking anything with caffeine, that enzyme, DNA polymerase 3, is impaired by 50%. And guess what that means? That means that that mutation has a really good chance of, of not being deleted by the mechanism designed for our body to stay healthy. Okay, so that's why if we're taking advantage of the strategies of good nutrition, we can actually handle a lot more sunlight without any adverse effect. 
Okay? Still, we need to be prudent on that. So, um, what, what about uh, how much vitamin D or sun exposure do we need? Well, studies actually show that the greater the melanin content of your skin, the, the darker the pigment of your skin, the more sunlight you need in order to make a certain amount of vitamin D. And so, someone with darker skin has a natural protection against excessive sunlight. But that also means that they need to be in the sun four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times longer than somebody with fair skin in order to make the same amount of vitamin D. They can make a lot of vitamin D, they just need to be in the sun longer. Still, prudently, pay attention to common sense, right? Okay, so now, um, how do you know? How do you know if you have enough vitamin D? I used to think, I walk on the beach on Guam every afternoon. I know my vitamin D is perfectly fine. Do I really know? Absolutely. When I measured my vitamin D, I discovered it was 25. I was at high risk for all kinds of things simply because I'd never realized that was, that was such an important wellness strategy. So what did I do? Oh, well. No, I fixed it, right? I made sure that I was not only getting prudent sun exposure, but supplementing appropriately so that the next time I checked my vitamin D, I was 70 to 80, right, where I wanted to be. Okay, so that's something that we can manage. And how do you know? How do you know if your cholesterol is too high? How do you know if your blood pressure is too high or low? How, if your blood sugar is too high or low? How do you know? There's really no other answer except you test. Be aware. Knowledge is power, but awareness is a call to action. It, it, it causes things to change just because you know that information. We know that vitamin D or sun exposure, even in a hospital, being in a, in a, a room that, is, that has light streaming through it, decreases your need for pain medication by 22%. Why? Because the sunlight stimulates serotonin production. See, one of the other big, great consequences of avoiding this, this, this critical wellness strategy is that many people develop seasonal affective disorder. In fact, 35 million Americans alone suffer from the seasonal affective disorder, this sad disorder that simply occurs during the winter months due to what? A deficiency of the nutrient sunlight. It is a nutrient, by the way, not just because it generates vitamin D. It's a nutrient because light photons have a healing quality psychologically and physiologically. Very important. If you have this seasonal affective disorder, you're more likely to feel sad, irritable. You're more likely to be violent. You're, you have decreased physical energy, increased appetite for carbohydrates. Very, very critical. In fact, you know that just darkness... It, it spurs on binge eating in individuals. Anybody who has any tendency to eat foods that they know are not good for them, especially in large amounts, are much more likely to do that if they're not taking advantage of this critical wellness strategy as living in the light just long enough every day to get that important dose of, of healing. 
Okay, so dim light lowers inhibitions. It makes us do things that we would normally not do. It lessens our guilt. It, it, it leads us to compulsive behavior. So a standard treatment for that form of depression, really any form of depression, is to get outside into the light. I'm, I'm spending some time in Alaska this year, and I know that you know, there's, there's times when there's very little uh, light. And, and so that's why light therapy boxes are made available. And if you, for whatever reason, can't get outside in the early morning light, I would recommend that at minimum, you get a light box that has 10,000 lux bright light. And you get exposed to that for 15 to 20 minutes every morning. And I guarantee you that that can be a, a powerful wellness strategy for, for improving your overall health. We know that proper sunlight um, allows for less deaths from prostate cancer, breast, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, less risk of, of, um, of prostate cancer, more um, control of muscles, lower blood pressure, less bone fractures, less MS and arthritis. Uh, we know that that uh, both type 1 and type 2 diabetics, um, or we are less likely to develop either of those conditions just simply by having adequate levels of vitamin D in our blood. A, a Finnish study uh, done on adult men where it was found that if they had higher levels of vitamin D in their blood, they were 72% less likely to develop diabetes by age 50 compared to those who had lower levels of vitamin D. Yeah, it's, it's a simple strategy, folks. I, I love it when it's something that's easy to test, it's easy to measure, and easy to incorporate into a program. We just need to act on it. Um, uh, so dramatically, in, uh, low levels of D increase cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and so forth. Studies have shown that that diabetics, 61% of them were low on vitamin D. We're talking about severe deficiency, like less than 10 nanograms. Uh, compared to, but, but non-diabetics, 43% of them. They're, they're actually, the newer studies show that between the, the, the years of 1988 and uh, 2004, the rates of vitamin D deficiency have, have just climbed steadily. So we're dealing with over 70% of individuals are classically deficient in vitamin D. The, the data is just too strong to be dismissed by a couple studies that threw together some statistics. We need to really pay attention to the big picture. Even wrinkles. You know, every, one of the big reasons we, uh, many people are told to stay out of the sunlight is because of, uh, of wrinkles. Well, what's the main cause of wrinkles? from an avoidable health risk behavior. Smoking, right? Any smoking decreases circulation to the skin, and so it by far is the greatest cause of wrinkles. But see, as I mentioned earlier, exposure to the sun in of itself isn't the risk factor. It's exposure to excess sun where we don't have the right diet to help protect and create barriers, antioxidant barriers against free radical damage. So that's why diet is so critical, and that's why a first-class diet that avoids meats and dairy and, and, and excess fats and sugar, but focuses on whole plant-based foods, powerfully protects the skin against wrinkles 
and skin-related disorders. So uh, we know that uh, Dr. Robert Heaney, who is uh, one of the world's leading experts in vitamin D, sits on the FDA board on nutrition, uh, a professor emeritus from Creighton University in Nebraska, uh, who was uh, chair of his department of, of, uh, of medicine for many years. He has done hundreds of studies on vitamin D. And he said that he, one of the studies that he did says that every baby, child, and adult should increase their vitamin D intake, if they're not paying attention to this, by at least 2,000 units a day. That would cause no side effects, but it would dramatically decrease problems. Here's a rough rule of thumb, by the way. The average adult male needs about 6,000 units of vitamin D daily to optimize. I'm talking averages now. The average adult female needs about 5,000. And there's never been a reported problem or side effect associated with those levels. Um, uh, they, in fact, Dr. Robert Heaney, th this is actually his slide that he gave permission for me to use, he showed these studies that there's never been a documented toxicity to vitamin D if the blood levels were less than 200 nanograms per milliliter, if you're, for, or ml. If you're a Canadian or European, that's 500. Your levels can go up to 500 uh, nanomoles per liter, and there's been never a reported toxicity. So all this discussion... All these concerns that you might hear about in a paper or on the media about vitamin D being toxic is, it's actually, there's more folly to that than talking about water intoxication. Far more people have succumbed to water intoxication than vitamin D intoxication. You get my message? Okay, so uh, there's never been a reported death from, from excess vitamin D, even with one gentleman who is taking 2,600,000 units a day for many months. Naturally, he ended up at the ER feeling pretty bad, and uh, a very astute ER physician went through the long list of possibilities of somebody that was experiencing uh, uh, muscle rigor, tetanus-like uh, like reactions, uh, you know, very, very tired, couldn't understand why he just, could, just couldn't feel good. And this astute ER physician actually tested his vitamin D level, and it was 700. You, you would expect if he's taking over 2 million units a day for nearly a year, guess what happened? They told him to stop taking this accidental overdose of vitamin D, and within a few months, he was fine. Okay? So, so again, we're not talking about huge risk here, but we're talking about huge benefit if we take advantage of what the research is showing us. Now, there, there, there's some interesting research here on cardio, cardiovascular disease, is that if your levels of vitamin D are less than 10 nanograms per ml, and a lot of people are there, okay, that's an 80% increase in risk of cardiovascular disease compared to levels above 15. And really, you want to be at least 30, preferably at least 50, right? So, so you, want to, you want to at least minimize your risk at the low levels. 
Do you know that one of the most powerful ways that you can protect yourself against influenza is just make sure that your vitamin D replete. Uh, an interesting study done on African-American postmenopausal women, a women that are at very high risk uh, of influenza. Why? Because they have very low levels of vitamin D, partly because of that extra protection they have due to their darker skin. And so they were just given between 800 and 2,000 units a day for three years, and their risk of influenza dropped by two-thirds simply because of getting a therapeutic dose. Now, if they'd gotten 200 or 400 units of vitamin D, probably wouldn't have done any good. So you have to take enough of it to get the benefit. There was a study published showing that if you feel like you're coming down with a cold or the flu, you can instantly take 1,000 units of vitamin D per pound body weight per day for three days. So let's just say you weigh 100 pounds, you can take 100,000 units of vitamin D. I like to divide that into morning and night and, uh, and do that for three days. It can cure, reverse that, the beginning of the flu or cold overnight. My mother, my mother who uh, at the time was 80, I think she was 84 years old. This is about three years ago. We were flying. This is, this is my stepmother. I've been fortunate to have two mothers, wonderful mothers. Uh, and we were flying to Geneva, uh, speaking on a con- at a health conference. And then we were going to spend about three weeks traveling Europe together, giving talks at various places. First night, we arrived in Geneva. There had been delays, and we had missed two nights of regular sleep. And my mom says, Wes... I'm feeling so horrible. I'm coming down with the flu. And we looked at each other. We had three weeks of planned travel. And this was threatening the entire trip. Well, I pulled out my little bottle of vitamin D. And I said, Mom, would you be willing to take a a squirt of this? So I gave her about 50,000 units by mouth. She went to bed that night, woke up the next morning feeling fine. I know that that's anecdotal but I've seen that happen time and time again to myself, to my children, to patients who've taken advantage of this very simple strategy. So we want to take advantage of, and so there's there's all kinds of great data, great data on vitamin D. We could spend another hour another hour on addressing all the different studies In fact, if you could fast, let's fast forward through, oh, there we go, okay, we're, um, there we go. So here's a question as we finish. And this is Dr. Robert Heaney's slides, uh, one of the world's top researchers and clinicians on this topic. And he asked this question to us at an international conference. He says, how can a deficiency of a single nutrient produce such So many and such diverse health effects. See, historically, if one thing benefits so many other health factors, the first thing you think of is this is snake oil. This is quackery. How can one thing impact so many health variables? Well, how how could breathing 
air impacts so many aspects of our health, right? I mean, it's a pretty simple answer, really, but here's his answer. He says that, see, vitamin D is this integral component of the mechanism whereby cells control gene transcription in response to a variety of stimuli. In other words, vitamin D literally gets in there and changes the way the way DNA works to optimize your health. He says, so adequate vitamin D status then enables, this is a key, key concept, it enables optimal response to a broad variety of signals. What do we mean by enable? In other words, it's not forcing anything. When you have optimal vitamin D in your blood, now your body is able to do what God created the body to do, to, to destroy disease, to optimize hormonal balance, to do all these things that we've been learning about. But if your vitamin D is low, your body is disabled in its ability to fix those things. It's not like a drug that doesn't just enable, it actually forces a mechanism at work. It's an enabler. And that's really how we should be working with one another is living our lives in such a way that we enable each other to take advantage of these principles, not forcing anybody to do them because it's the right thing to do, but enabling, just like vitamin D, enabling people okay, to choose the very best things in life. And ultimately, we see that vitamin D literally unlocks, it unlocks that, that, that code, that template, that's inside your DNA library that actually has instructions on how to destroy that very virus, that very bacteria, that very cancer that's within your body. So if we want to enable the body to help help optimize its fight against disease, one of the strategies, one of the most forgotten strategies, is to take advantage of the sunlight and vitamin D connection that we have with our health. Thank you. For questions and answers. So, Pastor Sam, what do we got so far? Questions, one of them coming from Sarah from Alaska. And she says, living in the Arctic is an interesting thing especially when during the winter there is 24-hour darkness for approximately six weeks. And then in the summer, the sun never setting for six weeks. I did purchase a happy light to use in the winter. How long would you recommend to use the happy light in winter for sun replacement therapy? And what would you suggest for normalizing the circadian rhythms during the summer months? All right, I love that. Happy light. Boy, that couldn't be named any better. So the question is, is, is uh, you know, living in Alaska where there's, there's many months with very little light. And, and I think, Sarah, you're, you're already, you know, working on the key strategies here is that you have to supply what is deficient. It was, wasn't it Cicero who said, old age must be resisted and its deficiencies supplied. Isn't that Brilliant. He was a, a Roman orator around the time of Christ. And he essentially said it better than anybody. He says that we need to pay attention to what our deficiencies are. 
That's why blood testing and other forms of health assessment testing are such, is such a critical aspect of wellness. You cannot be well unless you do broad testing. Let me rephrase that. You cannot optimize your genetic potential to be well and to resist disease unless you figure out where your deficiencies are. And I guarantee you, you have deficiencies. I guarantee you that you have multiple gaps and chinks in your armor that could be fixed if you only knew what they were. So I, I value personally the opportunity to find out where my chinks are, and I have a lot of chinks in my armor. And by discovering what those chinks are, that gives me an awareness of what to focus on. And so if you live in an area where, for whatever reason, you're low on sunlight, test your vitamin D, optimize your vitamin D appropriately, but make sure you're taking advantage of that happy, happy light, that happy box. And, you know, when we first moved to, from Guam to, to Southern California seven years ago, we moved in January, and it was an unusually overcast, cold, and rainy, hazy January and February. And we were not very happy at all. Okay, so we, I wish you would have had that happy light at that point in time. But you, we need to do whatever is necessary to fix the deficiency. That's the most critical thing. And then make sure you're taking advantage of all the other wellness strategies. Don't get sidetracked into thinking that spending 20 minutes with your happy light is going to fix everything. Okay? That's one strategy, but we have to add that to all the other strategies as well. We also want to invite those in the audience who have a question just to come up to the line that's down here on my left-hand side. Yeah, so and anybody that has questions, question, feel free. Come up and share it with us. There's another question from Susan coming also via um, website. Dr. Youngberg, what about vitamin D supplements? My doctor has put me on supplements in the past after my vitamin D measured at 11. The supplements did get my levels to go up but I have since read that vitamin D supplements have been shown to contribute to hip fractures and other negative things. Okay. Um, I would say that the reverse of that is true. All the data, the good data shows that appropriate use of vitamin D decreases the risk of hip fractures up to 50%. And so I think there's a miscommunication there. There, there's, there are some reports in medical newsletters that are worded in such a way to make us think that it's bad for us, when in fact all the research shows the opposite. So uh, clearly, if your level of vitamin D is that low, it's 11, you got to fix that, or else you are accepting a very unnecessary, very high risk of succumbing to many conditions. Not just multiple cancers, but cardiovascular disease, depression, falls, fractures, kidney failure, on and on and on and on. Yeah. Very good. I know you mentioned this already, but if you think it's, it would be a good reminder, um, how many units of vitamin D should we be taking daily as an adult? But also maybe mention for a child, how many units of vitamin D? Okay, okay. could people put my slides back up for a second? I want to I yeah. 
to answer that question about vitamin D for children, let me actually present a study that was done on children. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, and um, the, 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 the study was actually done on child, school children who were taking vitamin D during the wintertime. And, and it's essentially documenting the difference in the risk of developing a, the flu in those children who are getting at least 1,200 units of vitamin D a day compared to less than that. It was a, a, a very, uh, very, very powerful study. Okay, so the, uh, here we go. Let's see, so we're, uh, let's go back to this study. There we go. Okay, so this, this study basically looked at, it was a, a clinical study. In other words, it was, it was a randomized study where they took school children and, and then just randomly divided up in two groups. Some of them were taking a good amount of vitamin D and some of them were taking less than that. And so what, here's the bottom line of the study is that only 36% or a third of the normal risk uh, uh, compared to kids not taking any form of vitamin D. So, com- so relative to getting a flu, those kids who are getting at least 1,200 units of vitamin D a day were, were actually two-thirds less likely to come down with the flu. Okay? Uh, for kids who had a previous history of asthma, whew, it was a, a powerful effect. Uh, the risk of Getting the flu and those taking the vitamin D was only 17% or less than one-fifth of those kids with no vitamin D supplements. So I ask you to evaluate the research. Where is the, where is the research that shows there's harm? Where is it? I don't see it, okay? Where's the research that shows powerful benefit? It's everywhere. All you got to do is pay attention. You know, so many truths in life are ever-present. All we have to do is go to the source of truth, and there it is, okay? But unless we're willing to search for truth, we'll never find it, and we'll actually end up believing a lie. That's scary. Uh, So uh, I guess the bottom line, according to Dr. Robert Heaney's research, Everybody, baby, from birth on, would benefit from getting at least 2,000 units of vitamin D daily. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Sarah again from Alaska, and this is a question that she sent at the end of last week's program, so it's going to be a little different, All right. but I think it's an important question. How can I optimize my digestion, especially after being diagnosed with the right... Diverticulitis. Thank you. (laughs) And what are suggested protocols for fatty liver, non-alcoholic? Okay. Uh, Two big questions. Well, um, bottom line is that, did you know that the vast majority of, um, of liver damage is not related to alcohol consumption? It's related to what's called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or fatty liver disease, which is due in part to maldigestion and in part due to just allowing the weight in the midsection to get excessive. 
And so one of the, I actually uh, asked this question to a, a chief of hepatology at Loma Linda University about 15 years ago. He had, he had come to Guam to, to visit our medical group, and uh, we were outside looking at the sunset, and I said, I said, hey, doc, what, what advice would you give somebody who has hepatitis? What's the number one thing? Any type of liver failure or liver problem, what's the number one thing that they could do? And he turned to me and he said, Wes, if you can just get that patient to lose 10 excess pounds in the midsection, there's nothing that we can do for that patient that's more effective than just getting rid of that unnecessary fat. Now, today, we've actually shared some very exciting and enlightening, pun intended, enlightening uh, strategies, strategies that can powerfully help people with weight issues or other metabolic issues where they've not been able to succeed in the past. So I challenge all of us to take advantage of light therapy. Uh, and it, can, it could be that one missing ingredient that can literally change your, your wellness program and make it work for you rather than against you. So that's, uh, the other question was with regards to diverticulitis. Any medical word that ends with itis means that you have inflammation. And, uh, and in this case, it's inflammation of the, of the little pockets of, of uh, muscular wall in the colon. Well, um, the, the first step is to kind of step back and look at the big picture, make sure that Make sure that the diet is an effective diet. Make sure that the diet is gradually uh, implementing an increase in healthy whole food fibers. Uh, and that can uh, make sure that thyroid is optimized because if thyroid is weak, that leads to problems with inflammation. It leads to problems with constipation and diverticulitis and diverticulosis. Um, so there, there's... We could spend a whole hour talking about the things you could do for that. But the, the bottom line is that you need to take a big, broad look at health. And secondarily, you need to make sure that you're working with a clinician that understands the level of your, of your inflammation and treating that prudently. So I'll leave it at that. Okay, thank yeah. you very much. If anybody else from the audience would like to share a question, um, we're open still to answering some of these questions and just come up to this um, line over here and, okay. and share with us. Gene. I have a neighbor that tells me it's terrible to use a microwave. He's given his away and <laughs> I want to know if it's really very damaging to foods, but what about if you just heat your foods in it when it's hot? Okay, so the question has to do with what about microwaving food and whether or not that's uh, a problem or not. I'm not an expert on that, uh, so I'm not going to pretend or act like one. However, I, I have listened to some experts who understand electromagnetic frequency and, um, and the potential damage associated with electromagnetic pulse. I've had the opportunity to take a... EMF monitor into my house and recognize that the electromagnetic pulse coming from my microwave extends about five feet. 
And so one of the rules we have in our home is that we know where that is. In other words, if we're, if we're warming something up in the microwave, you stay back at least five feet. So, so that's my, my first and main concern is direct exposure to that electromagnetic uh, field. Um, and and there's, there's good evidence. There's certainly people that are extremely sensitive to that. Uh, we know that for a fact. The question is, how about other individuals who might not have a, a severe sensitivity? Um, in terms of how it impacts food, I don't know. Uh, so I, I, I guess I'm going to get a lot of emails now uh, on both sides of that, <laughs> which is fine. That's how I learned. <laughs> we have another question from our yeah. audience. And mm-hmm. This is Bob, who will be sharing with us. It's my understanding that medications can reduce the amount of vitamin D in your blood. Is that true, according to your experience? Uh, it, it is. There's certain, there's certain medications that can impair absorption of many vitamins. Uh, for instance, metformin, who is, which is largely considered to be the very best medication for diabetes and prediabetes, and I agree with that, um, uh, actually impairs the absorption of vitamin B12. And that's one of the reasons that it's been implicated in studies in possibly influencing dementia risk or Alzheimer's risk. There's good studies documenting this. I'm not making this up. Uh, That doesn't mean that metformin is a bad drug. It just means we need to be aware of that possible deficiency and supply that appropriately. And so anybody on metformin or similar medicines that are documented to impair the absorption or use up extra amounts of different vitamins or minerals, then the prudent thing is to make sure that we're following Cicero's uh, maxim, which is old age must be resisted and its deficiencies supplied. So thank you for that question. That's very important. I have a question. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And my question is, um, besides the sunlight, what other... um Elements are out there that produce vitamin D oh, in human beings. That's a great question. Um, so the, why can't we get this from diet, by the way? It's a valid question. Well, uh, one of the, one of the um, marketing elements of dairy products is that dairy products are fortified with vitamin D. There's really very little if any, vitamin D in dairy. It's just that they add it to the product. And that does actually significantly improve the potential benefit of dairy. Now, that doesn't mean that people should drink dairy. Okay, what it, what, what it means is that that industry recognizes the value of vitamin D, just like you and I should. Okay, and the first, first and foremost, we need to replete vitamin D in a way that gets our blood levels to an adequate level, at least above 30, preferably above 50, in my opinion. So the, how, what foods are rich in vitamin D? Well, liver, great source of vitamin D. Do I recommend the consumption of liver? No. Why? Because liver is also a great source of all kinds of toxins. Okay? It's a great source of iron, too. But, uh, you know, the liver is a detoxification organ. So don't be surprised if you're getting a tremendous amount of toxins if 
if you're consuming liver or organ meats in general. It's also a great source of, of sky-high cholesterol, okay? so, oxidized cholesterol. So it's not, a, it's not something that I would recommend. Um, what are some healthy sources of vitamin D? Shiitake mushroom steak. Great, great source of vitamin D too, the vegetarian form or the plant form of vitamin D. Uh, one three-ounce shiitake mushroom steak will give you maybe roughly 1,500 units, more or less. I haven't looked at that recently. That's a, that's a good amount of vitamin D. But, but we need a lot more of that every day, right? That's, that's the point that we've been making. And, I, and even though shiitake is good for many other reasons besides its vitamin D, it's very immuno-enhancing, who's going to eat you know, six, six ounces of shiitake mushroom steak every day. It's not in my budget, okay? Uh, and it's not in my desire either to eat that much of shiitake. So bottom line, 90% of the vitamin D in the human body in somebody who is not taking vitamin D as a supplement comes from sunlight. The problem is, is that as we age, our ability to transform cholesterol into vitamin D is greatly diminished. And, and because of cleanliness standards in the Western world, we're just not holding on to a lot of vitamin D we're producing. And, there, and because of those factors, it becomes very evident to me that it would be prudent for us to supplement vitamin D adequately in order to get our blood levels above 50, 50 to 100, and how are you going to know if you've reached that goal? You test. So you should test your vitamin D every spring, which is going to be your lowest point of the year, right, after the winter. Uh, and if your vitamin D, you know, uh, is under 30, you are doing your health a disservice. I, I want to keep it 60, 70 all year long. So that means you adjust your intake depending on how much sun you get. And you also check it in the early fall, which is at the end of, a, of the summer, where you've been hopefully getting more vitamin D naturally. So you regulate your intake according to your personal level. Not what I say, not what anybody else says, but what your personal level shows. And some people need a lot more than others. We're getting lots of questions now, but time is running out. So we're going to go for one question from Rory from Marietta. And his question is, do we need to be directly under the sun to absorb vitamin D, or can we absorb it direct, indirectly by being under the patio? Okay. <laughs> um, the sunlight has to, the photons have to connect with your skin at a 45 degree angle or higher. And um, so you'll probably get a little bit of scatter. You know, I, I, I spent some time skiing recently and got a lot of vitamin D bouncing uh, from the sunlight bouncing off the snow, right? Or if you're underwater, the same concept. So you're going to get more exposure to sunlight if you're on water or on snow. Uh, so you, even if you're in the shadows, you're going to get some of that scatter. But um, how are you going to know if that's sufficient? You've got to test. Okay? And the rule of thumb is, is that don't rely on sunlight alone to optimize your vitamin D because 
It rarely is the case. Let me put it that way. I've, I've, I see in my practice that it's, it's the exception rather than the norm. One more question from Michigan. What is the difference between vitamin D2 and vitamin D3? Okay, D, D2 is the form of vitamin D produced in, in certain plants, and, and that's very few plants as well. Okay, so it's a very unusual form of vitamin D. And it's also a form that some studies have suggested you don't want to take high amounts of that because the liver has to work a little harder to convert it into, a different, into vitamin D3. Most vitamin D3 comes from lanolin or the sheep's wool. How does it get into their wool, by the way? Because it just oozes up from the skin. The ultraviolet light converts cholesterol in their skin into vitamin D that gets into their wool. And then the wool is actually pressed and that vitamin D3 comes from that. So, so it's from a nutritional or a, a vegetarian, vegan perspective, it would be similar to eating honey. Honey is expressed by bees, okay, and, la- and vitamin D3 is expressed through the skin of sheep, okay, so, um, and it's purified. So if, if you're a strict vegetarian, you would then use a, a vegetarian form, okay? If, if uh, you're a, a vegetarian primarily for health purposes, we're not aware of any potential major benefit of, of switching over to D2. In fact, we're aware of more potential downside of using D2. So I personally don't have an issue with either one. You just take enough of D2 or D3 to optimize your blood levels of vitamin D. I want to thank the audience for their questions, and I want to also thank those who are watching online for sending their questions. Some of the questions were not able to be answered tonight, but we're hoping to answer them next week again. And why don't you tell us what is happening next week? So make sure you tune in next week. We have a long list of great presentations, uh, each one helping us make sure that our wellness strategies are broad filling in the gaps so that we don't miss out on the opportunity to reach our goals. So we'll see you again next week.